It's already been a long Thursday for Jesus, but the time is drawing near for his arrest. Before this occurs, Jesus will face three tests. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will continue to demonstrate his love for us. After Jesus' prayer for his disciples and for those who would believe in their message, he moves them on in the still darkness of Thursday. Thursday. John 18, 1. When Jesus had heard these things, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. I've been to this garden, or at least what the tour guides believe is the garden. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives, and it looks across the Kidron. It is full of ancient olive trees. Gethsemane is an Aramaic loan word for oil press. And you should Google it. These trees are very old, and the garden has been well taken care of for centuries after the church deemed it a holy place to protect. My guide said that some of the trees in the garden would have been there at the time of Jesus. But my research discovered that they are about 900 years old. But since olive trees come back after being cut down, the roots could be older and could have been from Jesus' day. Or medieval monks planted a bunch of olive trees and started claiming it was the spot. I don't know. But Jesus was in the garden. And this is no accident. Where does the biblical story begin? In a garden. Where does the separation from God happen? In a garden. Over what decision? To obey God's command. Here, Jesus, whom Paul will call the second Adam, stands in a garden with his own choice to obey God all the way to the cross or to choose what is right in his own eyes. If he passes the test, access to the garden will be open for all. If he fails, we have no hope. In Matthew's account, we find Jesus praying in the garden before his arrest. If you've seen Passion of the Christ movie, this is where the movie begins. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is not an easy test, and Jesus desires that his friends watch out for him during it. Biblical tests typically come in threes, and we'll see that Jesus prays three times. Now, what are they supposed to watch out for? Assassins? Police? Judas? The Satan himself? During this garden test, Jesus asked God if it's possible for his cup of suffering to be taken from him. This is a burden on Jesus. This is where the battle begins between the spiritual powers of the world and the spiritual kingdom of God. 
Luke tells us this in Luke 22:43, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke is the only gospel account to describe this. An angel comes to the garden. What a loving father Jesus has for him to be sent comfort in his most distressing time. Physically, Jesus will be painfully destroyed. Symbolically, Jesus will be taking on the sins of all mankind. Spiritually, he'll be passing the test of obedience and overthrowing the serpent's authority over us. But just as God promised Adam and Eve as they were exiled from the garden that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would strike his heel, the serpent crusher will fall. And that is why Jesus is distressed. That is why Jesus is depressed. That is why Jesus sweats blood, which is a medical condition called hemodrosis. It's not common, but it's associated with a high degree of psychological stress. Severe anxiety can cause the release of chemicals that break down the capillaries in the sweat glands. And as a result, a very small amount of bleeding goes into the glands and the sweat comes out tinged with blood. We're not talking about a lot of blood, just a very, very small amount. Sweating blood is Dr. Luke's way of telling us that Jesus was suffering severe anxiety over his decision. And these thoughts make my heart ache. How alone Jesus must feel. Then, when he is this alone, save an angel and Yahweh himself, Jesus finds his friends asleep instead of watching out. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Peter, James, and John are tired. It's late. It's dark. Their bellies are full. Jesus has been praying for an hour. He knows that the Savior thing is not going to be fun. He continues to double check with God that it's still the plan. Test number two. But unlike you and me, so often, when Jesus hears the plan is the same, the hard plan is the right plan, he says, your will be done. Jesus has surrendered to God's will, even when he knows it will cost him everything. Verse 43, and again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. Test number three. If he succeeds in passing the third test, then the consequences of trusting God will befall him. And in this case, it will be an arrest. And he does pass. So we go to John's account, who skips the three tests and writes straight to the arrest. John 18, 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Did you catch what Jesus called himself to Judas and the band of soldiers? I am he, the Greek equivalent to the name of Yahweh. At this, the soldiers fall back on the ground and Jesus reiterates that he's the guy they're looking for and he'll be arrested willingly, but they should let his friends go. And while John doesn't mention it, we know full well from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Judas kisses Jesus. Here's Matthew's account. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Peter doesn't like how this night is going. John 18.10 Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, Peter has the best intentions, maybe. But he's also being foolish at the same time. Luke tells us that the disciples ask, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? In Luke twenty two forty nine. But Peter doesn't wait for the Lord's response. He just lops off Malchus's ear. I don't know if he just was doing a kill shot and missed or what. In Matthew's account, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back in its place for all those who take up the sword perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he'll at once put more than 12 legions of angels? Luke tells us that Jesus touches Malchus's ear and heals him. That is Jesus's final healing. I don't know, maybe there's a five second rule on your ear. The point of this is that Jesus goes willingly. It's God's plan. Nobody can stop it. And I've often thought that this is a great example of why the good guy with the gun theory doesn't really hold up. Because Peter was a good guy with the sword until he was a bad guy with a sword. Because good guys can become bad guys in split second. And Jesus warns him if he lives this way, he'll die this way, which we are all experiencing. Jesus passed the test. He surrendered. It was verified by Yahweh that it was time to die. Now, just for kicks, Jesus said if he desired, he could be rescued by 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion of soldiers was about 6,000 men. And so Jesus is talking about the possibility of calling down 72,000 angels. That would have been something else. Jesus being saved. But then none of us would be saved. So Jesus chose to go unsaved so that he could save many. John 18, 12 
So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Mark 14:50, And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing on but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Mark describes how the apostles and disciples, including himself, flee from Jesus' side just as he had predicted. Mark himself, or the young man he does not name, runs away naked. And I've always been amazed at that. That he would rather be naked outside of town during the most crowded time of year than be arrested with Jesus. Well, what would we have done? So Jesus is alone, bound in chains to be taken to court for trial. Now, it's illegal for the Jews to hold trial in the middle of the night without the entire Sanhedrin present. There's 12 reasons why this trial is illegal, but this is already the longest episode ever. Jesus will endure three Jewish trials in the middle of the night while his supporters are asleep or scattered. Then he'll be brought before Pilate, the Roman governor, and then before King Herod, and again before Pilate, where Jesus is finally sentenced. It's still the beginning darkness of Thursday. Two different stories begin to unfold here. We'll see Jesus' first trial, and we'll see Peter's denials begin. It's been a long day, and they're now still awake in the part of the day that you should be asleep. In fact, right, the disciples had just tried to catch some Z's while Jesus was passing the Eden test. Jesus would be emotionally exhausted at this point. His anxiety wouldn't have subsided. He's marched into Jerusalem in darkness when no trials can legally take praise. He he faces the Jewish courts. Still today are the ruins of the outdoor steps that go from the Kidron Valley to the historic house of Caiaphas, the high priest. There's a courtyard outside the house that these stairs enter into. It's likely a similar backdrop to what's playing out in these two stories. John 18, 13. First, they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Okay, historically at this time, Caiaphas is the high priest, a.k.a. the leader of the Jewish religion. He had proposed that one man die for the sake of the people, not realizing how prophetic that actually was. He is the force, the human force, behind the elimination of Jesus. Behind every murder, there are the puppet strings of the serpent, convincing us to choose what is right in our own eyes, even if that's taking a life. Caiaphas's father-in-law is Annas, and he oversees Jesus' first trial. History tells us that Annas had been anointed high priest by Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And we understand that the position of high priest is a lifelong title. Yet, the Romans don't like that kind of power, and they interfere with the Jewish way. Only one of the reasons the Jews so desperately wanted a political messiah. The Romans meddled, and they made Annas hand over his throne, per se, to his five sons and his son-in-law. Annas, though not officially a high priest in the eyes of Rome, is still powerful in the eyes of the Jews. To them, he's still technically a high priest. Meanwhile, John 18, 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. 
But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, we can't be 100% sure, but this other disciple is likely the author, John. He and Peter are close. Anyway, this other disciple, whom we'll call John, somehow knows Annas and is allowed in. So he's able to get inside the courtyard. He tries to get Peter in so that they can both witness the trial. But being in the courtyard full of people lusting for the destruction of Jesus is... A dangerous place to be seen as a friend of his. Peter lies to get into the courtyard. This doesn't count as one of the three denials, but he's already beginning to deny out of fear, out of self-protection. This is the man who swore to Jesus he would die for him if need be. The man who drew a sword to protect Jesus, who now denies he even knows Jesus. Now, there's no record of John denying Jesus to get entrance. And as we see, as the story unfolds, John will find himself in bolder positions where the other disciples do not tread. Once Peter is in, he mingles with the crowd and tries to stay warm on the cold spring midnight. Well, what's going on in the trial? This is the preliminary investigation, the equivalent to Jesus being in a police station, in a room, with two cops asking him questions, trying to get a confession. Well, what does he have to confess? John 18, 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus is right. He's spoken openly in public places. He didn't do anything in secret. If they want to know what he has been teaching, they could ask anybody. Jesus is slapped by an officer for disrespecting the high priest, which we know is high priests in Jewish eyes only. Jesus asks if he was wrong. No answer. They take him to the legal high priest and the collection of the available nighttime Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin have 71 members with three parties. Party one are the chief priests, which would include active priests and former priests like Annas. That would include the temple guard, the steward of the temple, and some temple treasurers. Party two is the elders. This would be the wealthy and influential people of Jerusalem. Party three are the scribes, who are the writers of middle-class society. Inside party one and party two are mostly Sadducees and party three is mostly Pharisees. 
They're holding this trial at night, which makes it informal. They'd have to ratify any decision at dawn to satisfy their strict laws. They need a quorum to even hold official business, just like many of our church business meetings. But they only need 23 members to constitute a quorum. It's possibly that from midnight to 3 a.m. or so, not all 71 members are present, but they justify it's enough to count for business. They've arrested Jesus at night because their law states that they have to hold a trial directly after an arrest. It's a well-planned scheme. They had decided to kill Jesus in a meeting earlier, and they had hired Judas to turn him over. They just need to gather enough official evidence to satisfy their decision. We head to Mark's account, which, by the way, I can't get into it here, but Mark's gospel overlays the events of the cross on a Roman triumph parade motif in a, in a stunning way. But to see that, you have to be just reading Mark. Mark 14, 53, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. The witnesses' stories about Jesus and what he said about the temple just don't match, which is a problem. Because according to their law, you can only convict a person based on two agreeing testimonies of witnesses. It's in Deuteronomy. If they can't manipulate that, they could be stuck, especially when they're seeking death. Mark's account continues. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Oh boy, Jesus just dropped another I am reference and claims to be the exalted Son of Man from Daniel 7 in front of the high priest. This is the first place in Mark's gospel that Jesus openly claims to be deity. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So they couldn't meet the standard of the law by having two matching witnesses of Jesus claiming to be a temple destroyer which they viewed as an attack on God. So they're saying that Jesus' claim to deity is blasphemy. That'll do it. In their law, capital punishment could be used to regulate adultery, bestiality, child sacrifice, false testimony in capital cases, which they're guilty of right here, false prophecy, homosexual acts, idolatry, incest, kidnapping, murder, rape, rebelling against your parents, Sabbath-breaking, witchcraft, divination, and blasphemy. Caiaphas makes a show and tears his cloak and cries out blasphemy. The sentence, death. Caiaphas will feel a great sense of relief here. Now that Jesus has, as far as they are concerned, condemned himself, they don't have to worry about the mess their witnesses made. 
The guards take turns spitting on Jesus and putting a covering over his head so he can't see. And they start punching him and they ask him to prophesy, who is it that hit you? Can you imagine that insult? Luke tells us they blindfolded him and then hit him. It's like, I just hit you. What's my name? Why are they doing this? Well, Isaiah the prophet said the Messiah would be able to make decisions based on the spirit of wisdom and not by sight. Now, can Jesus do that? Of course. He knew Nathaniel by name and what kind of man he was before he even met him. But Jesus doesn't respond to this mockery. And after this beating, he's off to a next round of trials. But what about Peter? How does he respond to the treatment of Jesus? Does he draw his sword again? No, he's more scared now than ever. We turn to Luke 22:56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, that would make you feel rotten enough, right? But it gets worse. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he'd said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus is in the midst of trials, and while being moved through the courtyard from place to place is being mocked and hit and slapped in the face, and his eyes connect with Peter as he denies him. Now, let's step in Peter's shoes for a moment. We're scared for our life. We're scared for our Lord. But we're not scared enough for him to override our fear for ourself and our well-being. So we deny that we know him. We deny that we're a disciple. We deny we've even heard of him. Even in front of him. What's amazing is Jesus decides to carry on with saving Peter and all of us like him. He might have looked into Peter's eyes and seen the denial right then and there and said, Nope, I'm done. I'm not doing this. I'm not saving any of you. This hurts too much. Not just being punched in the head or the mockery, but my best friend is acting like he doesn't know me. I thought this savior thing would be more fun, but it stinks. It's the worst ever. I'm done. Jesus could undo his chains and disappear. He could walk away as he's done many times before. And it would make perfect sense if that's how the story ends. That is justice. Jesus, the son of God, the perfect one, giving up on sinful man and going back to heaven to forget us and to leave us to rot in our sins and die. That's what's fair. That's what makes the most sense. But he doesn't. His mercy robs justice. He takes it on the chin for Peter, for Caiaphas, for Annas, for you, for me. What kind of man is this that he lays down his life for those who won't even lift a finger for him? What a savior we have. Without him, we're lost. He's our life, and one day, we get to hug him and tell him thanks in person. When I read this story, I just want Jesus to win in the way we're used to. I want to see him flex in a dominant way. And I know he's actually winning through his death, but I don't like watching him do it. I want Jesus to call down the angels and avenge himself. I want to cheer him on as he conquers wickedness. But Jesus needed to do this to remove the wickedness in me. Okay, recenter. 
Thursday morning is here. The rooster crowing signals it. We are in the last 12-hour stretch of Jesus' longest day. Here we see a virtual rerun of the evening proceedings. At sunset, the sacrificial lambs and goats will be sacrificed for the upcoming Passover. That evening, Jewish families will eat the Passover meal, but Jesus won't. The Jewish leaders have been at trial all night long, and they'll hold this hearing now at dawn. Luke twenty-two sixty-six. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Jesus gives them what they want, a confession. He confesses he's the son of God. He speaks clearly and truly. They just don't believe him, but they do believe something. They believe he's a blasphemer. They believe he's a cult leader. They believe that God would be happy if he died. Jesus is now convicted as a blasphemer in the Jewish courts. But the Jews are under Roman jurisdiction. They have no power to sentence Jesus to death themselves. So they have to present him now as a criminal to the Roman authorities. And in 33, Matthew 27, verse 3, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went. He hanged himself. At this point, Judas feels bad. He doesn't like the consequences of his actions. Who knows what he thought would happen when he turned in Jesus, but this apparently isn't it. When he sees Jesus will be killed, he wants to take it back. Here's the money. Just make it go away. And I know he doesn't actually say that, but his emotions have to be screaming inside of his soul when he speaks to the priests. The silver he received for selling out God is burning a hole in his pocket, but in a different way than normal. Usually money burns a hole in our pocket when we want to spend it real bad, but his money's burning in his pocket because it's a constant reminder of his guilt, his responsibility for everything, and he has to get rid of it. And if you stop right there, halfway through verse 5, you give Judas an opportunity to turn his life around and be restored as an apostle of the Lord. Peter overcomes his fall. Judas could, by the same power, which is Jesus' forgiveness. But at the end of verse 5, he goes away and he hangs himself. Many scholars say he demonstrated sorrow, but not repentance, and thus is not counted in the saints. Jesus also said in the garden that Judas was lost. And that's surely the case before he turns the silver back in. But after, I don't know. I see a man whose betrayal is great, but maybe forgivable since the Satan was at work in him. I see a man who's sorrowful and tries to make it right. What more do we want to see? Jesus is unavailable. Judas seeks his release. The suicide's unfortunate. He doesn't want to outlive the death of the Messiah, which he caused to start. Jesus' work on the cross removes this sin from Judas as well if Judas puts his faith in Jesus in the end. I won't be surprised to see Judas in the kingdom, but I also won't be surprised if he isn't either. 
Anything's possible. Luke tells us in Acts that the hanging rope doesn't hold him well because he falls headlong into a field and his guts spill all over. Well, what did the chiefs, the chief priests do with the money he turned in? Matthew tells us they decided they couldn't keep it in the temple because it was blood money. So they bought a potter's field and with it, they made this anonymous cemetery, uh, the cemetery of the unknown, which was called the field of blood. That's lines up pretty fun with a prophecy from Jeremiah. But we continue. John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. (laughs) They don't want to be ritually unclean for the Passover, which is going to be their next dinner. Yet they're in the middle of turning over the Messiah of their faith to be killed. That's, That's something. But... Pilate hears them out. Now, Luke gives us some specific charges they offered up against him. They say that he was misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and calling himself Christ the King. Now, did any of that come up in the Jewish trials? No. They used the taxes angle and the king angle to get Rome's attention. And could Jesus get any more misquoted about taxes? He said, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he also paid his own taxes. So does this case now have Pilate's attention? Not really. He says, don't bother me with your business. And they say, well, we just, we can't kill him though. We can't give the death sentence. And so Pilate now knows they want blood, that this is very serious. And he is their governor. So he seeks a private audience with Jesus. John 18, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? See, Pilate doesn't really care about Jewish business, but he is curious. And Jesus is curious if he's coming up with his own ideas about him or not. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is the truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. What's the truth? Well, the truth is this whole gospel story, what Jesus is playing out. The truth is that God loves the world so much, he gives his only son that whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. Pilate, being a skeptic, asked what truth even is. Was Pilate interested in Jesus' answer? I mean, he has the Son of God, in a room alone, and he could ask him all kinds of things. Pilate asked a huge age-old question about truth, 
but he's not really interested in the answer. Pilate turns away from the one who has the answer, and he goes back to the Jewish leaders. Here, Pilate demonstrates, at least in the moment, whether it's because he's tired or frustrated or overwhelmed, that he's uninterested in real justice. But he doesn't think Jesus is guilty either, and he tells the Jewish leaders this. Matthew tells us more of what goes on between verses 38 and 39. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Back to Luke 23.5. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. So we questioned him at length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him and then arraigned him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. The Jewish leadership is desperate and they want something possibly intentional here. By saying he's stirring up people from Galilee to Jerusalem, they can get someone else involved. Pilate's not really moving the ball for them, so now King Herod can be involved. Once Pilate hears the word Galilee, he's eager to pass the buck. So Jesus gets rushed off to trial number four, in a sense, before King Herod. King Herod is the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. And we've seen his involvement already in the story. He arrested and killed John the Baptist. He's the son of the Herod who wanted to kill baby Jesus, and he has the opportunity to finish his father's wishes here. His father left his kingdom to his sons, with Herod Antipas getting Galilee, and now the judgment of Jesus falls right into his lap. But since he's getting nothing from Jesus, he just sends him back, in a mocking way, but at least a friendship was kindled. So Jesus is dressed in royal clothing by Herod's soldiers, meant to be ironic. But this is Jesus' coronation. Jesus, through mockery and misery, becomes king of his kingdom. Through his blood, he'll conquer the enemy and deliver the citizens who receive him. It's beginning. Luke 23, 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought to me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Now, Pilate's likely looking to release Jesus to fulfill his Passover Eve's tradition that he did to appease the people, which is he would release one prisoner to them. That's not the guy the Jews want released. They want Jesus condemned. Matthew 27, 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to him, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. 
Besides, when he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Pilate's lost control. He tried to release innocent Jesus by putting him up against Barabbas, who was described by Mark as a murderer in a recent insurrection. His wife's imploring him to release him, but the people want him killed. So what is he to do? Maybe beat him a little, convince the crowd he's had enough. At this point, he's already suffered a great deal of violence. The guards were certain not to be gentle when they were delivering him from the garden to the court. And we know that they beat and mocked him in the courts. And we know Herod's soldiers played dress up. Now Pilate decides to have Jesus suffer a scourging. John 19, 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Never has so much context been in such a short sentence. Roaming flogging was torturous. Jesus would have been stripped and leaned over a half pillar. The Romans used whips with sharp pieces of sheep bone and iron balls. And the bones would shred and pull the flesh apart. And the iron would bruise and break the body. Two Romans or more would exchange blows upon Jesus' back. If enough blood was lost during this event, he would go into a state of hypervolemic shock. This torture was used only on non-citizens according to the Porcian laws. And many people would die from this alone, but not our champion. He's fighting for us. John 19:2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Jesus' body has been tortured. Isaiah prophesied that his beard was ripped to the bone, that he was not identifiable as a man anymore. Yet they put a forehead-shredding crown of thorns upon his head, a purple robe on his raw and bleeding back. They mock his royalty. They hit him some more. Pilate has him tortured, doesn't want to kill him. He brings the Savior of all mankind before the crowds and declares, Behold the man, which fulfills the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah. There he stands no longer looking like a man. He's covered in his own blood. Some insides on the outside, exhausted, humiliated, agonized, mocked, enduring this for you and me. It's unbelievable. Why would we ever doubt his strength in our troubles? Why would we ever think he allows our sin to separate us from his love when he paid this kind of price to restore us? John 19, 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, 
You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and cast down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. It does appear that Pilate has a serious fear that Jesus may be who he claims to be. I have no proof for this, but I have a personal conviction that Pilate believes that Jesus may be the Son of God. And in verse 11, Jesus grants him grace by saying someone is at greater fault. Immediately, Pilate seeks for a way to free Jesus, but the way is just not clear. He's in a really tough spot politically, and we've discussed some of those reasons already. We all make poor choices when politics trump ethics. No pun intended. At any moment, Caesar could have Pilate's head on a platter because of his record with Caesar already wasn't good. And at the same time, he had been fighting off the Jewish insurrections. He can't afford to offend either party. His mistakes will cost him his job within four years. And that doesn't make him right. It just makes him human. He makes, it makes him like us. Verse 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Goodness, what a long day. And there's still five to six hours left of daylight, all full of Jesus' agony. And I've decided to cover his death in a separate episode and give it some special treatment. But I hope that you've enjoyed enduring Jesus' days as he likely experienced them. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Jesus isn't selfish. He passed the test and obeys his father's hardest command. Jesus rewrote justice for you. He endures much to buy you back from the king of this world. He is our champion. What sort of tale have we fallen into? Let's pray some praises today. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone, anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will die.